0: If you would open your copy of the Scriptures to Philippians chapter 3. This morning we will be reading chapter 3, verses 20 through chapter 4, verse 1. Please give your attention to God's holy word. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, I pray for Your people to stand firm in the Lord, to always remember That His power which enables Him to uh, set all things underneath His feet is at work in them. I pray that You would remind us that in Christ we are more than overcomers and that all things are possible through Him, I pray. His name, Amen. I have been uh, seeking to uh, teach uh, the doctrine of sanctification as we have been moving through these latter uh, verses of Colossians chapter 3 and moving on into chapter 4 uh, because this is what the Apostle Paul is, is doing here. And um in seeking to do this, I have um I thought of a of a novel way to to try and illustrate what I believe Paul is saying in Philippians chapter three. Uh anytime I use the word novel in the pulpit, it worries me because um There's really nothing new under the sun, especially when you're talking about God's Word. So let me explain what I'm seeking to do. What I'm wanting to do is I want to illustrate what Paul is saying in Philippians 3 by turning to another passage of Scripture. And that's actually not a novel approach because that is uh, the way um, the Apostle Paul uh, often did it. So I'm going to preach the same sermon twice, once from John chapter two, the passage that we read responsively, and then um, from Philippians three twenty one through chapter four verse one. So, if you would like to turn in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter two, or you can use your bulletin uh, as we look at Jesus' first miracle. And as I said, we we read it earlier in the responsive reading, so you have it printed there. John chapter two: there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and it specifically says in chapter two, verse one, that on the third day, well, what is this on the third day? What is that reference to? Well, that's a reference to the third day after Jesus met his disciples. Jesus had been in the region of Galilee, and while he was there, he met Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And so he has these four new disciples, uh, his four earliest disciples with him. And while he is there, uh, he goes to a wedding. Uh, We don't know if this was someone in Jesus' family. We can surmise that this was someone close to his family because um, Mary, Jesus' mother, uh, was there and was involved in the wedding. Uh, Jesus brought his new disciples with him to this wedding. Mary notices that the wine has run out; they've run out of wine, and so she becomes stressed. It would be like um, I'm from from Georgia originally. You know, if you were putting on a party and um, the hors d'oeuvres ran out uh, really early, it would be a serious breach of etiquette. Uh, very embarrassing. So, so you, you can see Mary is being, is, is very stressed here. It could be that she's stressed because Jesus has brought four uninvited guests and she's thinking maybe they drank all the wine. I don't know, but, but she's stressed when they ran out of wine. So they, so she goes to Jesus and she says, we've run out of wine. And Jesus gives her this response. In verse four, he says, "Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. Now, there's two issues that are immediately raised here by jesus's response. first, the first issue is the way that Jesus speaks to his mother. children, um, what would happen to you if, in the midst of telling your mother no?" You spoke in the way Jesus did. Woman, what What does this have to do with me? Well, I know what would have happened to me, um, and it wouldn't have been good. I don't even know if I would be brave enough to speak to my wife like that. <laughs> uh, Jesus is using an affectionate term. He's not speaking uh, in a disrespectful term. He's not being rude. It's a, it's a disrespect, I mean, it's a respectful way of speaking to his mother. But at the same time, he's still telling her no. Why is he telling her no? Well Jesus was very focused. Everything in his life revolved around his mission to go to the cross, to become sin for sinners, to die in their stead, and then to be raised on the third day. And in Jesus' mind, the fact that they've run out of wine uh, does not have any bearing on that mission. And so He says to her, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does Mary do? Well, she plows right through His protest. She ignores Him completely. She pulls parental rank. Children, listen up. Even Jesus obeyed His mother. And guess how old Jesus was? He was 30 years old at the time. Jesus is God. He has authority over everybody. But this passage underscores His full humanity. God, Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. Well, how does this underscore His humanity? He obeyed His mother. And since Jesus um, was tasked by His mother to handle the situation, He decided to use this situation as an occasion uh, as a, for a teaching moment for His four new disciples. Um, there were these six large stone jars, and each jar held 20 to 30 gallons of water. And I would imagine that there was already more than enough water already in these stone jars to um, to, to make it more than enough wine than was needed. But Jesus said, it says here very specifically, instructed the servants to fill each of these six stone jars all the way up to the brim with water. And then He turned all of this water into wine. That would have been, it says these um, jars held between 20 and 30 gallons of water each, and there were six of them. That would have been between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. And yes, every drop of it was alcoholic. It wasn't simply grape juice. Jesus instructed these servants who had filled the jars with water then to take some of this wine to the master of the feast. The master of the feast um, we learn here in the passage, does not know that they had run out of wine or that Jesus had changed all this water into wine. And so then he goes up to the bridegroom, and it's kind of humorous. He goes up to the bridegroom and he says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You know, I was imagining, what would, what must the bridegroom be thinking? Because he likely did not know that they had run out of wine. And this master of the feast comes up and says this to him. What must he have, um, what must, uh, have he been thinking? I think he probably thought, well, um, you're some master of the feast. You've been drinking too much of the wine and have become confused. This miracle is instructive for us. In understanding Philippians uh, chapter three verses uh, twenty and twenty-one, because of um, of what Jesus does here in this miracle. First of all, this miracle is a display of His glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory, and the four disciples that Jesus had with Him, they had heard Jesus called the Messiah. They heard John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Um, And now they were able to witness His power. Secondly, the wine that Jesus created pointed to the perfection of His work. He filled the jars to the brim. And then this wine tasted much better than the original. Jesus' work on the cross paid for every sin, the full total of His people's sins. He didn't waste His blood. He didn't simply make salvation possible. His blood paid for His people's sins. Matthew one twenty one. you shall name Him Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. And He paid for them completely. Thirdly, and this is where it's important for us this morning, this miracle, like every miracle that Jesus performed, pointed to the salvation that He was going to accomplish for us. The heart of this miracle here in changing the water to wine, the heart of this miracle is transformation. Jesus transformed this water into wine. He did not create it. Um, as new wine that still yet was to become perfected. I'm assuming you all know something about wine. You know that uh, the better wine takes time. It has to age um, in order for it to become more perfect. Well, Jesus, in creating this wine from water, it was perfectly aged the moment He created it. This glorious transformation of this very ordinary water into this very real and perfect wine mirrors Christ's glorious transformation in us of our salvation. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, or when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you were transformed just as radically as that water was when it was changed into wine. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you became a follower of Christ, you became something you were not previously. A transformation took place. You became a new creation. And furthermore, This water changing into wine. The wine did not cooperate with Jesus. And the servants who brought the water and filled it up, they were doing what Jesus said. In other words, it was all Christ's work. Our salvation, our transformation is all Christ's work. When did the water help Jesus make itself into wine? Well, it did not. Likewise, you did not help Jesus transform you. Uh, You would never have come to Jesus. The transforming work would have never been begun in your life. You were a victim of His grace. You were going away from God, and God in His mercy made you alive with Christ when He drew you to Himself. That's how you began the Christian life. It was God's work. And when you die... What will you do to help Jesus take your soul to heaven? Nothing. That's work that's Christ's work as well. So then that, that raises the question of what about the time in between? What about the time where from from when I became a Christian to the time I die? Is that my work? Do I cooperate with Christ in that work? What can you do? The question is to help Jesus make you grow in His grace. In a very real way, the answer is the same. There's nothing you can do to, um, to help Jesus transform you. It is His work completely. Now, you have a response, because I know you're asking this question, What about me? Well, you have a response that is empowered by His work. You would not respond. You would not have power to overcome your own indwelling sin if it were not God's work in you. Your response, in other words, and you are 100% responsible to respond, to obey, but your 100% response is God's grace working in you. Remember the passage um, a few months back, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, "...continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do according to His good's purpose." You have a responsibility. It is a 100% responsibility, but it is not a cooperation it is you responding to god's grace in your life so the question what do you do to between when jesus drew you to himself and when you die and go to be with him it's not you the answer is not that you cooperate with jesus it is rather that he is at work In your life. If you belong to Jesus, He will be making you more like Him. He has secured your perfection in heaven. Look at Philippians three, verse twenty one. The apostle Paul says beginning with verse 20, "...but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself." Your perfection is secure. Not only you're standing with God, but you are going to receive a perfect body, a glorified body, a sinless body, a body that will be free from temptation. You will have a glorious body to house your eternal and sinless soul. And while we are here on earth, between the time when He changed us to the time that we go home to be with Him, Jesus is changing our desires, our habits, our actions, our words, our motives, so that we are becoming who we will be. He is changing you through ongoing repentance, through continually renewing your trust in Him. This work between when you became a Christian and when you died to go home to the Lord when you were made perfect is His work all the way through. You are simply responding to Him. What does this mean? And here's where I'm going to connect it back to John chapter 2 and His miracle of changing that that water into something completely new, into perfect wine that filled up the brim of those six large water pots or, or jars. Jesus is able to change anyone in this room. No matter how many previous attempts you have made to change and have failed, He can change you. No matter how difficult your circumstances, He can change you. No matter how powerful a grip sin has on your life, He can change you. And here is the really, really good news. Christ can not only change you, He desires to change you. And verse 21 says He has the power to do it. Embrace Him. Embrace His change agenda that He has for your life. Your salvation is a glorious transformation. Your salvation resulted in you becoming a new creation. And now, I want to quickly, very quickly, take you through how He does this. Before you became a Christian, as I said earlier, you were moving away from God, but you became a believer because Jesus Christ reached out and grabbed you. He transformed you. He gave you a new nature. This is what we call regeneration or being born again. He raised you from the dead spiritually. He remade you. And as a believer now, you have new desires, new motives, and new goals. All this newness that is in your life revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. My mom thought that I had become... um, joined a cult uh, when in college I became a Christian. Because I went to church growing up, I would walked the aisle, I had sat up and paid attention while the preacher preached, but my life really was focused around me. And I, I went off to college and I come back and my mom sees that my life is now not focused around me, it's focused around Christ, and it was such a big change that she thought that I had um, joined uh, an unhealthy group of people. So you have received regeneration. You've also received a transformed record. This is what we call justification. Um, Some states have a repeat offender law. It's called three strikes and you're out. After three repeat... um, felonies, I guess it is, then you go to jail without any possibility of uh, parole. Well, we are repeat offenders. We have thousands and millions of sins in our records that are counted against us. But Christ wiped your record clean by His death and resurrection if you belong to Him. And not only that, He gave you His record of complete righteousness. He completely transformed your record so that there is no possibility that you will receive punishment for your sins on the day of judgment if you were in Christ. So we have a transformed nature, regeneration. We have a transformed record, justification. We have a transformed life, sanctification. Christ is at work in you. Not only does He change your desires, your motives, and your goals, He also changes your life. He changes how you conduct yourself. You don't by any means become perfect, but the overall trajectory of your life starts heading toward heaven because the goal of your life, Jesus Christ, is there. You become more aware of your sins. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you see your sin more clearly, but as you see your sins more clearly, your disgust with yourself might grow, but at the very same time, you are becoming more and more enabled to turn from them. But you might be thinking, I still feel entrapped by my sins. Is Christ really at work in me? I don't feel transformed." Listen, if Jesus Christ is at work in you, or rather, if if you belong to Jesus, He is at work in you. Your growing frustration with sins that uh, have power over you could very well be due to the fact you belong to Him and He is at work in you. That frustration is the frustration that He is causing. The painful consequences of your sins due to Christ working in you. He's doing what He has to do to sanctify you because you belong to Him. And so you have a transformed life. You also have a transformed eternity if you belong to Christ. This is what we call glorification. This is what I mean when I keep pointing over here. I'm talking about glorification. Last week I spoke about the nature of our glorified bodies that we will receive when we get to heaven. It will be, verse 21 tells us, like Jesus' glorified body. It will be a body wonderful beyond our imagination. No more physical weaknesses. No more infirmity uh, associated with old age or illness. No more sadness no more temptation, no more sin. You will have a limitless energy and a perfect health in heaven. And Paul is telling them about their glorified body. And he's been telling them in chapter 3 about their sanctification, about how they can grow in Christ not so that they can sit back and be comfortable and rest easy. Rather, He is telling them because He wants them to stand firm. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He is saying, Christian, you can... Stand firm in Christ. He's telling you about your future glory so that you can have a present confidence. That you can have a present confidence that people without Christ simply do not have. You can stand firm in Christ. You can press forward in obedience to God in Christ. Nothing has power to hold you back. It is God's work. I'm sorry, it is God's power that is at work within us, verse 21. The infinite, the eternal power that Christ uses, uh, that He exerts in ruling the universe is at work in you. Christ Himself is at work within is at work in you. That is an that should be a revolutionary concept if you've not fully thought this through. God Himself is at work with you. It is little surprise that Paul says uh, later in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. It should revolutionize your whole perspective. Don't tell me that you can't escape from sin if you belong to Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that you can't um, grow in your relationship with Him if you belong to Him. Paul is saying if you belong to Him, His work, His infinite, eternal work is at work in you. Don't tell me that you've got to give in to this or that sin. You can stand firm, chapter 4, verse 1, because it is Christ who is at work within you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray as we are talking about, admittedly, uh, this deep subject of sanctification, even the the concept itself employs a big word to uh, explain it but it's where we live. And it, and it explains to us and reminds us that Christ's power was at work within us when we came to Him. Will be at work within us when He gives us a glorified body like His own body and is at work within us every moment of our Christian lives here on this earth. Father, I pray that You would be at work within us and remind us of that fact daily, even moment by moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.